Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, my name is Troy Haltzell, and I'm uh, your host on uh, New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Kirby Lambert, the Outreach and Interpretation Program Manager with the Montana Historical Society in Helena, Montana. Today we're discussing the Society's new book, A History of Montana and 101 Objects, Artifacts and Essays from the Montana Historical Society. And this book showcases uh, the remarkable collection of artifacts preserved at the Montana Historical Society. Since 1865, the Montana Historical Society has pursued its mission to collect and protect items of significance to Montana's past for the pleasure and education of residents and visitors. This assemblage of objects, interpretive essays, and beautiful photographs by Tom Ferris draws attention to the diversity of experiences, the triumphs and the sorrows, the everyday struggles and joys that made Montana. Kirby, thanks for speaking with me today. Oh, Troy, thank you for having, having awesome. me. It's my pleasure. Good, good, good. I'm really excited to do this. Um, so I know I'd sent you a list of topics just beforehand, but one I forgot to include is, could you just tell uh, our, our listeners just a little bit about yourself, kind of how you came to work at the Society, and then, as I always like to call it, kind of whatever your greatest hits are there. Okay. Well, um, I've been at the Montana Historical Society for an unbelievable 36 years. I came 36 years ago thinking I'd stay a year or two. I'm from Texas originally, always loved history, always wanted to come to Montana. I uh, got the opportunity, and I guess that's the rest. They, as they say, the rest is history. I've had several jobs here. Uh, at this point, I'm the head of our education program and um, just get to do a lot of uh, public programs in Montana history and work with people doing writing books and our state history conference. And so um, have a really great job. I've been really lucky that way. Well, good. Well, thank you for that. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, much like myself, uh, you know, I'm a transplant as well, even though I don't have, you know, 37 years in the state. Um, but yeah, so let's just jump right into this here. So, so how did the Montana Historical Society come about this project? Well, it actually started several years ago. Uh, one of our patrons came to our then uh, uh, magazine a book editor and said she had a great idea. She would wanted to write the, a book on the history of Montana using artifacts and objects. And other people had done this. I think the British Museum started out with the history of the world and 101 objects. And we'd said, you know, that's a really fantastic idea. We love it. Um, can we play too? Uh, I think originally she had envisioned using artifacts from across the state and, you know, doing it herself. But she graciously said, sure, you know, it, it could be a joint project. And so we made the decision to use only items from our collection. And originally we started out with thinking we'd do 150, but that was kind of more than uh, the book was going to be too big. It was going to be too expensive. It was taking too long. So we decided that 101 made more more sense. Okay. Now, I don't know. Her name is Stephanie Ambrose Tubbs, and she is one of the contributing authors. Okay. 
Okay, well, cool. Yeah, and I'm always interested about how projects come to be, especially something like this, where there's, you know, like you said, you may have been the the, the project wrangler, uh, but with just so many different contributors, you know, it was not really one person's um, idea, as it were. Right, right. Okay. Well, and, you know, it, it was just such a, I mean, we'd never thought of it, but Stephanie did, and what she suggested, it was just such an obvious thing to do. Uh, and we were we were thankful that she let us be part of it. Okay. Um, so to the point where you talked about just using collections there in-house, was that just a really practical consideration um, that you had a collection, you know, there on the premises? Right. Um, well, we have, you know, so many incredible things uh, here in at the Historical Society, and we have you know, museum objects, three-dimensional objects, we have artwork, we have archival materials like diaries and business records. We have a library with all kinds of books and maps and newspapers. And then we have a photograph archives. So, I mean, it, it, we had everything we needed here. Um, it just made sense, you know, if it's a, if it's a project of the society to, to use our own collections, uh, because the, it was a situation where we had an overabundance. I mean, the hard part was deciding of the thousands and thousands and thousands of things we have, you know, what are the 101 that we can include? Uh, now, and that was an incredibly choi- uh, difficult choice, uh, especially given that there were several people involved. And of course, curators and archivists all have their own ideas about, you know, what's their favorite. Well, you kind of beat me to the next question, or at least you got in front of it. You know, so so that you had so many artifacts, um, both the museum collections, archives, et cetera, there. I mean, how did how did y'all make the selection? Like, how did y'all select the objects that got into that book, right? Because if you got thousands and you publish 101, you know, like what were the considerations y'all made to, to whittle that down to something manageable? Right. Well, we started out um, with about six people were involved originally. And we each brought to the table, you know, the artifacts or the items we thought were the most important. Our original shortlist was about 500 pieces. And um, then from there, we narrowed it down. There was a, a little arguing involved, uh, not too much name calling, but, uh, you know, everybody just has pretty strong opinions because there's so much great stuff here. But we also wanted to do things like make, make sure that we uh, covered the state geographically so that, you know, it wasn't just all Western Montana, but there are items from Eastern Montana, that there are items from uh, all the American Indian tribes, the, you know, other ethnic groups, uh, the Chinese, the Germans from Russia. Um, so just that it was as representative as possible from, um, you know, from a big picture standpoint. And also just, just showing off some of the things like uh, the USS Montana Silver Service uh, that was done about 1905 um, for the USS Montana. And, you know, visually, it's just so incredible. And it, it's silver and it's shiny. And, uh, you know, that something like that was just a really easy uh, choice to make because it's so obvious when you know everybody sees it just kind of takes your breath away. No, I definitely appreciate um, trying to, to capture, you know, the, the, the best... Holistic might not be the right, the right word, but kind of a representative sample of the state, you know, and, and, and as a transplant, and, and, and maybe you felt the same way when you got here, um, you know, way back when, is that, you know, I've been here for three years, and I'm still astonished by the sheer size, especially geographically, of the state, right? <laughs> so just driving from 
you know, from here to Lewistown, you know, I'm in Great Falls, you know, about 90 miles uh, to my east. I mean, just, just, you know, at, at first glance, it may just kind of look like rangeland and pasture, but just, just like, like what that entails versus the west side that's a bit more, I think, densely populated um, and, and just, just the different aspects of it. It, it. it was, it was definitely something I noticed that they're definitely, there was, I could tell just from the, the table of contents of thumbing through it the first time that, that, that y'all had made an attempt to do that. Um, and right. I thought y'all did a pretty good job. Right. Well, thank you. And the other, you know, the other factor to throw in there is, is the passage of time. We didn't want it to be, you know, we wanted to cover the full spectrum of Montana history. And of course, you know, um, much of that, what we call Montana history actually happened before there was a Montana. So the, the prehistory and the first peoples who were here um, all the way up, not, you know, more or less present day. Um, there's, it, we tend to focus more on, you know, as historians, I think the older stuff interests us, interests us more, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's, there's certainly like things related to the, um, you know, up into the seventies and 1980s as well. Um, so we did try to, you know, represent the full spectrum of time as much as we could. The, another thing that we, we didn't really, I mean, we thought a little bit about, but we didn't realize how important it was going to be was, um, the actual, the, the image. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we wanted things that have visual impact as well as a good story. And some of the things that we originally had planned on using, uh, just, didn't photograph. We have, for example, a Nesper's canoe that's probably 125 or so years old. It's very, very rare. Uh, it's it's a dugout, you know, from a, this huge log. Amazing piece in our collection, but it's in bad shape. And when you tried to take a picture of it, it just didn't look like anything. I mean, we knew what it was, and we're <laughs> looking at the picture going, what is this? And, and our photographer, Tom Ferris, is great. So it wasn't that. It was just that some things just don't photograph well. I mean, that's an interesting point I actually hadn't considered. You know, but you, and as you say that, as I go back and, and think about it, you know, many of those objects, and, and just for the listener, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of start talking about a handful of those here in a few minutes. It, 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 they definitely, you know, they're not these massive things, right? And, and and so, for example, and this is kind of, I was talking to, um, I forget her name, but she's the, I think she's the head of collections, um, Amanda Trum. Oh, right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, me working at the Malmstrom Air Force Base, you know, we're starting to try to cl- identify artifacts to collect when we deactivate the Minuteman 3 intercontinental ballistic missile, right? And so, so one of the things I, I, I jokingly suggested to her is that, like, you know, if y'all could take one of those eight-ton steel doors from the missile alert facilities, that'd be fantastic. But those things are so massive, and they weigh eight tons. And I'm sitting there thinking, as you're talking, I'm like, well, how on earth would you even represent something like that in a book? You know, and just those considerations you have to take that, like, it has to be something that someone could look at and go, oh, that's the thing, and I understand it, and I see it. And and so, yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting consideration I hadn't quite considered. Mm-hmm. And another example of that are F.J. Haynes, who was the, for many, many years the official photographer for Yellowstone Park. Uh, we have his skis, and uh, I think they're from the 1880s. And the amazing thing about them is how long they are. But when you had a picture in the book, it, you know, it looked kind of like a couple of toothpicks. It's like, well, you know, good deal. They're a pair of skis. But, you know, without, without that context... Um, they just didn't read that well. So that's another thing that didn't make it in. 
Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. Hey, can somebody throw a quarter down there next to those? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you could do that, but still, it just wasn't mm-hmm. quite the impact we were looking for. And, you know, at that point, we were looking for ways to eliminate things. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. Well, um, so to, to kind of how you all arranged um, the book, you know, another thing I noticed quickly, right, is that it's not a chronological book from the beginning of what, what became Montana, whether, you know, 20,000, you know, million years ago, whatever it might be, to present day. Um, but can you describe how y'all actually um, organized the book, right? And kind of give a, an example of, of that organization and why y'all made the decisions that you did. Okay. Well, we did start out thinking chronologically, because that's generally the way we think. Um, but then as we started, you know, making the final selections of the objects and, and looking at them, there were just some, some themes that presented themselves. And one, of course, was Montana or before Montana, and that's of course prehistory. And then we started looking. Well, um, you know, people the, the first peoples were here when we you know start thinking about this place, but then everybody else came, and you know the first people who or the first Euro Americans who came, and then um, just some themes. We came up with things like uh, Montana Mosaic, which are different groups who came here. Uh, kind of becoming Montana, which talks about community building and the, the, you know, what we think of as civilization, newspapers and hospitals and, and um, building up that culture that people brought with them, making Montana kind of fit what the place they left behind in, in terms of their expectations. Uh, Montana's on the move, the importance of travel, and as you mentioned, what a big state it is. So being able to, to get around has always been an extremely important part of um, the state story. Montanans at home, Montanans at work. And part of the advantage of doing doing thematic uh, subjects like that is that it let us look at, you know, it's not, it's not, I mean, a lot of times when you tell Montana history, you tend to say, well, the Indians were here first and they did this and then white people came and then this. And so you could say Montanans on the move and it, it helps, um, reinforce that idea that that this is something we all have in common no matter when you lived in montana or who you were being able to get around the state was an important aspect of life or everybody who lived here had to work in some form or fashion we all you know home what what you called home varied greatly it might have been a tp it might have been a, a copper magnets mansion but it was still home so you have that in common that's actually a really interesting point, you know, because that because that was what I, what I found myself, you know, the the, the artifacts that made me <laughs> chuckle, you know, is probably the best way to describe it. And, and, and I'll, I'll ask you about one of those here in a minute. Um, it was because I could relate to its use, especially how you organized it, you know, that home and, and labor stuff and that stuff that everybody, like you said, does um, throughout the course of their daily, you know, it just... It's a good way to kind of make the reader, as I always, like to you know, more care, I guess, for for lack of a better way to describe it, you know, so they can relate. And I, I you know, okay, cool. It, I, yeah, that definitely helps me better understand at least the organization of it. Um, so I can definitely appreciate that. Um, okay, so so now we're going to kind of get into the um, some of the artifacts, and I think, like I said, there's 101. I'm sure there's actually more than that because I think the intros to all the chapters have a have a smattering of, of different objects as well. Um, but can you tell me and our listeners just what you know your 
maybe your personal two or three favorite objects are and then why. And then, of course, I have my own list and I'll, I'll ask about those in a minute. Okay, sure. And that, you know, that seems like an easy question. It's really not because my answer is everything. Um, I like it all. And, and you're right. We did. We started out as we said, okay, you know, we're going to have these 101 objects. And then we said, okay, well, here's something we can't, can't leave out. We'll, we'll kind of sneak it in as a, what we call the supplemental image. Uh, so we, there are, I think I counted, I think there's like 239 items actually in the book, of which 101 are, are, are official. Um, you know, I have, I have many favorites. One of mine is um, a painting of a Alaskan husky named, um, excuse me, a Siberian husky named Kenya, who was one of the uh, animals stationed at Camp Rimini during World War II. Camp Rimini was originally a CCC camp, and then when the war broke out, they were looking for a place to train men and sled dogs for Arctic rescue uh, in far northern climes. Actually, originally it was going to be for an in, a planned invasion of Norway. That didn't happen, but they said we still need this Arctic rescue component. So they brought uh, men in who had experience. You know, in, in 1942, there weren't that many Americans who were that familiar with sled dogs and and um, their you know proper treatment and how to how you did that. So they brought people in who did have that experience. Uh, one of those people who they brought in was Eddie Barbeau who was Ojibwe from Minnesota. And um, he brought with him his one of his favorite dogs who was named Kenya. And so they're stationed, like say, at Camp Remini, west of Helena. And a, a well-known Montana artist at the time named Jack Beecham did this really incredible portrait of Kenya. He's just a beautiful dog. It's a beautiful painting. And um, you can see there's in the background, very faintly, there's a, another musher who's driving a team. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where he does such a great job, not only of, you know, of capturing the animal, but also the animal's personality and spirit. And I just think it's a fascinating story because when you, you think of World War II and you think of Montana's contributions to the war, you know, I don't think very many people know about something like training sled dogs here. No, that's, that's an interesting point, right? So, because as you were kind of explaining, um, uh, you know, that, 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 that painting, which I really enjoyed too. That was actually, you know, I went through every chapter and selected one, um, artifact and I was going to send all 12 D and I was like, that's, that's going to take too long. So let me just whittle this thing down to just a handful, but, but no, it, it's interesting, right? So with that painting itself, like, like as you were describing and explaining it, you know, all of a sudden you can use this piece of art to talk about so many different things, right? So you have the mission, right? You have the role of, of, of animals, domesticated animals, right? Um, you know, you got the trainer, you know, coming from, we said Minnesota, was it? I, I said that, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, so from Minnesota, yeah. right. So people mm -hmm. on the move again, and then of course you had the artist, you know, himself that actually painted it. And so just kind of, you know, what that one artifact can tell, you know, a reader, uh, or a museum patron, you know, just about the many different facets that made up, um, just this one little snapshot of Montana's past and, and to that World War II stuff, right? Like, like living in Great Falls, I'm very much aware because the military base here is because of World War II. And then you had the Seventh Faring Group mission and stuff like that. I had no clue that this was a World War II era, you know, mission um, in support of the military here in the state. You know, it, it's kind of interesting. You know, like you, when you think of 
at least when I think of World War II and warfare, it's the it's the planes, it's the tanks, it's the soldiers and stuff, but not ever, you know, thinking at least on the front of my mind about something like this. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Also, I think one of the things I like about objects and artwork like this is it also it always leaves you asking questions. I mean, there's lots of things that can tell you, but you also wonder, you know, how did this painting come to be? Did Eddie Barbell, who owned the dog, go to see Jack Beecham's paintings and like it and say, hey, would you do this portrait of my dog for me? Or did Beecham see the, the dog and say, that's a beautiful dog. Can I paint it? You know, and so I think there's always part of the story that we're never going to know. Uh, and that's kind of intriguing, too, because it's just fun to think about. Yeah. And I, and I find myself doing that probably with with art, you know, and, and I'll get to, you know, C.M. Russell, of course. Right. And that's the, the third you know, one of the, the thing ones I sent along to you. But, you know, I use him as an example when you go to his museum here in Great Falls and you and I look at a, a painting. You know, I know a lot of that is influenced by his time, you know, all throughout the region. But, you know, I'm always just kind of like, well, what inspired him to do that specific you know, thing. Why, why did that? Why is that 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 uh, that cow hand? You know, posed that way. You know, and just it, 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 you're right. It does. It forces me, me personally to ask a lot of those questions that um, I'm, I'm never gonna you know have the answer to, and, and I don't really want to find the answer because I just kind of like right. imagining it. Right. Well, it's just fun to think about. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, so what, what's uh, what's another uh, one, one of your favorites, and then I can I can get into the few the a few of the ones that I'm I'm particularly intrigued about. Um, I should have had this already. Uh, you know, another thing that is really fascinating to me is a, um, it's a wooden, it's a wooden carving of a human skull and crossed bones, crossed femur bones, uh, which most people who would see it today might think it's like a, has something to do with pirates, because uh, it sort of looks like that um, pirate flag you always see. And um, really, it was Fav carved by Father Anthony Bourvalli, who was a much beloved uh, missionary. He was Italian originally. Uh, he came to the Bitterroot Valley in the 1840s uh, to join Father de Smet. And among other things, Father Bourvalli, of course, I mean, his, you know, he, he was a priest, a Jesuit, and a missionary primarily, but he was also uh, known for his skill as a physician um, and also as an artist. And he, he produced a lot of art. And this particular one, because it's a human skull, and it's a tradition called memento mori, or mori, I'm not sure, actually, it's Latin, so my Latin's not that good. Um, but anyway, that that means basically it's a reminder that you're human. So it was used as a teaching tool uh, when trying to convert the Indians and say, you know, here's this kind of scary-looking skull. Uh, if you're good in this life, you can go to heaven when you die. If you're not, you know, if you're not good here, there are consequences to pay in the next life. So, um, you know, it, it's very intriguing. You you look at it and you think, what in the heck is this? And what does this have to do with Montana history? But, uh, you know, the fact that it, it came so early, I mean, Father Ravalli came so early. It was such an important part of the state's early history. Um, uh, just just a fascinating thing. And also because you, it is kind of scary looking, but yet, Father Ravelli himself was so beloved by both uh, Indians and non-Indians. Um, so, you know, obviously Ravelli County is named after him. Yeah, and that, that's the thing I found uh, with a number of these objects that actually kind of helped me understand so many different place names, um, you know, just scattered around. And, and, you know, so many of the counties here are named after people, and that's probably 
true and, you know, pick your state. Um, but now it's just as, again, as, as a newcomer to the state of Montana, it, it, it I was like, oh, okay. I may be taking away the long, the wrong lesson from, from the artifact, you know, that's, it's not about no. naming a county south of Missoula, but, um, but, but it definitely helps kind of illuminate, um, at least for me, some of the, almost kind of the geography, you know, of the, of the right. state itself. Well, well, you know, and that's one of the things I mentioned that we do a lot of programs here at the Historical Society. And that's one of the things I like the best about Montana history is how connected it all is. And like when we do a program here, often, you know, there's not somebody in the audience who was there, but there's often somebody who knew somebody or who knew somebody who knew somebody who was there. And so there is that sense of, of connectedness and the fact that, you know, in terms of our recorded history, it's we're not that old, really. Uh, you know, if you look at Europe or or the prehistory of this area where we don't necessarily know those connections, but you can, you know, you can do that and you can say, um, yes, you know, Father Ravalli was here at St. Mary's Mission. Uh, we also have um, Father Ravalli's birthstones uh, for grinding flour. He was one of the first people to introduce agriculture, uh, wheat growing in Montana. So we have um, these birthstones that Father Ravalli brought with him from Belgium, which, which is truly amazing when you consider how he had to travel and the fact that he brought these with him and how much they weigh. Uh, and then we have a Peter Toft painting that we used to illustrate those, you know, to go with those birthstones about um, St. Mary's mission. And then we have a, another object that's included as a Peter Toft portrait, a uh, self-portrait of him reading in his miner's cabin. So it, it's just, you know, having all those connections and you, there are things you can trace in the book and say, yeah, this leads to that and this goes with that. And uh, just another, it's interesting and it's fun. And um, I, there again, I think it shows how, how related everything is. No, no, that's a, it's an interesting point you made about, you know, especially during public programming where, you know, you could be talking about something that happened hundred years ago. Right. Or, or for me, you know, my, my job, I do a lot of stuff basically from world war two kind of an on, and anytime I give a talk, I know that there is somebody, and it's usually many somebodies in that audience that either were part of the thing I'm talking about or their parents or grandparents were. And so I, I found, um, not, not that I'm necessarily going around and, and besmirching anyone, but I, but I find myself, you know, taking a much more measured uh, approach when I want to talk about, um, you know, especially sp- specific people, um, uh, you know, past historical characters and actors uh, because of that. Um, basically I learned that lesson once and I was like, all right, I need to, uh, <laughs> I need to adjust how I do this. Um, but, but I also find it's a great way for me to, you know, I can't tell you how many oral history interviews I have gathered because I gave a talk about something and that that person was in the audience. So it's a very interesting, um, very connected, uh, place, you know, and I forget who said it, or it's just kind of one of those things, but what is it? Montana, just one big small town type thing. And so it definitely yeah, has that feel. Right, right. A, a small town with a really long main street, I've heard. Yeah, and that's very true. And you're right. You have to be careful what you what you say <laughs> sometimes. Because like you say, somebody who knows somebody is going to be there. So and you say the wrong team thing, you're not going to get invited back next year to give another talk. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so, so if you will, um, if you don't mind entertaining me about, um, you know, I, I sent you three things I'm curious about. Like, I literally went through every chapter and picked one, but... Um, I'll just kind of go in the order of, the, of that email I sent you, but um, could you uh, tell us a little bit about the, the Montana Federation of Negro Women's Clubs cookbook? Um, curious about that just as its artifact, 
but then also, you know, why why that versus some other cookbook for that matter? Right. Well, I think part of it is, you know, to illustrate the fact that there were, in fact, you know, Montana never had a huge African-American population, but it certainly had a population, I believe, of, of not quite 2000, about 1920. Uh, this cookbook is, was published about 1926. And it, it you know, it, so it talks about the role of African-Americans in Montana. It talks about the, um, or, you know, talks to the role of women in the state and the kinds of things in you know historic periods that they could do and they couldn't. Um, women's clubs were, you know, probably a much bigger factor li- of life, you know, 100 years ago than they are now. I mean, there's still clubs around, obviously, but they were, I think, a much more uh, important both social outlet for women and an opportunity to do things. Uh, women as community builders, the you know, if you look at the history of things like libraries and theaters and um, these sorts of things in Montana, they're generally built or, you know, um, the idea came from women and often through women's clubs. Uh, they were kind of the, the movers and shakers that got those sorts of things done. And, um, you know, and who doesn't love food? <laughs> so, you know, food is even just food inter- history is always is quite interesting. Uh, but there were originally the women's clubs. So, you know, you had a lot of women's clubs in Montana. And then I think they started in the South where there were more African-Americans uh, who were not allowed to join. And the, the clubs, like everything else, were segregated. So they formed their own clubs basically with the idea of improving you know, life for African-American in general. But women in specific, they often played a role in promoting suffrage. Um, you know, and uh, equal rights and, and that sort of thing. And um, they were, you know, started at the early part of the 1900s. They finally disbanded in 1972 uh, when once general women's clubs were desegregated and, and black women could join, you know, previously all white clubs. They said, well, there's really no need for a separate you know, we don't need our own organization anymore. We can be part of the bigger picture. Uh, I was happy to to, to see that in, in, included in the book. And that just, you know, I, I've been slowly working on a research project here with, um, uh, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm spacing on her name, um, Alma Jacobs. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and she was heavily involved in what was then called the Montana Federation of, of uh, Colored Women's Clubs. Uh, I think it was the Dunbar Art and Study Club was the Great Falls uh, chapter. And, and so it was, it was interesting to see because like going through some of their records um, that I, a, I found there at the Historical Societies archives, but other stuff scattered around here, you know, just the role that the, the, the women's clubs played for Great Falls of Black Population, what was indeed integral. Um, it was in a sense kind of the um, anchor or foundation, you know, I'm not sure the correct metaphor for much of the very small black community, at least here in Great Falls, to slowly build off of, and so, so I was just happy to see that included um, in the uh, in the book. All right, so now I got to ask you about my absolute favorite entry, uh, just because it seems so counterintuitive and it should not be, but my favorite one is none other than number forty six, the electric bathrobe. Can you? <laughs> Can you please tell me about that? Um, and then I will, um, when you're done, I will tell you why it made me laugh so much. Okay. Well, yeah, it's it's always been one of my favorite objects here. Um, and it is kind of bizarre. It is a 
um, I don't know exactly what the fabric is, but it's, so it's a bathrobe, it's wired. And if you're familiar with that old kind of fabric covered wiring that they used to have, it has wires running through the inside. Um, and then there are little footies that go with it. Those are wired there. You can either, um, plug it in to an outlet or there's a, a little ceramic thing that you can screw into a light fixture if, if you, you know, choose to heat yourself up that way. And it, it basically was just kind of a luxury item. It belonged to Thomas Cruz, who was a miner. Uh, probably what he's best known for now is funding the Cathedral of St. Helena here in uh, Helena uh, in honor of his daughter who died. Uh, but obviously extremely wealthy, you know, bought this luxury item. You know, what a nice way in theory to keep warm on a, a cold Montana night until you spill your your coffee or your beer in your lap, and then I'm not sure what happened. But, um, yeah, it's just bizarre. But it also, you know, tells us that I think 1908 is the date on that, you know, and so electricity was available. We don't always think about having access to electricity that early, but, you know, if you lived in the kind of mansion that Thomas Cruz lived in, it was electrified by then, so... No, again, that's why this particular item stood out to me so much. Is this so? First, so first off, the reason I just saw the title "Electric Bathrobe" and all I could think of was just that, right? If you're in, the, you're getting out of the shower and you plug that thing in, there's no telling how how south that could go so quickly. You know what I mean? So it just gets electrocuted and dies wearing their bathrobe. But but as I kind of went back and just kept looking at it, right? Is actually I hadn't even you know considered the fact that hey, there's electricity, right? Like that's a thing that had to be created and delivered to homes, right? And that's this thing's only possible because of that. You know, this is clearly just an, a, a luxurious consumption item, right? I don't think anybody on earth ever needed an electric bathrobe, you know, now or then for that matter. Um, and so now that it, you know, came with some form of incredibly wealthy, and it makes sense, right? So whether they just, hey, let's check this thing out or, hey, look at this new gadget I got. Um you know, so, so it's so interesting that, and, and if you'll inter, just let me do it for a second, I just want to read the instructions uh, for everybody, right? So the instructions on the garment says, it says, the garment must be turned off every 10 minutes for one minute. Continue this as long as you care to stay in the garment. Ordinarily, 40 minutes is sufficient time. The garment must be turned off for one minute every 10 minutes, no longer, no less. And so, of course, for me, I'm sitting there wondering, I mean... <laughs> What happens on the 11th minute? Um, <laughs> I'm guessing it's just probably either incredibly hot or, you know, just kind of it overloads and it can't handle being on that long. But it's, it's, just, it's just such a, uh, for me, just an interesting object that I, I yeah, I, I never knew that was a thing until I saw that. And now I know it's a thing and I can't unknow it. Yeah. That. Well, and, you know, and it's not a one of a kind thing. It's something that was manufactured. So it's rare, certainly today. But, at, you know, at one point this is, they kind of, I mean, they made enough of them to sell. There were people out there who wanted this. Uh, you know, maybe part of it was at that time there weren't that many. I mean, we have all kind of electrical appliances now. Uh, you know, maybe you had electricity, you had a light bulb or two. What else are you going to do with that electricity to, to show it off and take advantage of it? So someone had to create all these things to justify all the outlets in the house. You know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, that, that, yeah, that's, that, that was just the one that made me chuckle. I was like, I absolutely have to talk about this one or at least ask about it. Yeah, yeah, um, it's pretty fun. Okay, so, so, so kind of the, the last one for me, um, and then, uh, yeah, we can go from there. So, so, of course, I was trying to figure out a way to include uh, Great Falls, Montana in this, in this conversation. And, and so 
there's two. One was that uh, Good Roads conference pin. I forget which right. number it was, uh-huh. uh, but I figure I'll, 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 I'll save people my interest in, in infrastructure. I'll go, t- I'll go talk to John Axline when I want to have that conversation. Um, but, you know, the painting by uh, Charles Marion Russell, for those who don't know, is a big Western painter, uh, turn of the century. He died in the 20s. 30s? 26. Uh-huh. 26. Um, and so y'all included a CM Russell painting. So I got to ask about it. So when the land belonged to God, um, can you just talk about, um, I guess if you could just a little bit about CM Russell for those who may not be familiar with him. And then also just about uh, the painting itself. Right. So Russell, Charlie Russell was born in St. Louis. He was actually born to a fairly affluent family, but he always wanted to come to, to Montana uh, initially to be a mountain man. He was born in 1864, and when he was 16 years old, his parents finally just got tired of his pestering them to let him come west. And they said, okay, I think their idea was that he would get out here, find out that it wasn't the romantic life he had imagined. It was actually a lot of hard work. Um, and then he would say, okay, well, I'm ready to go back home and you know resume the family business. And that didn't happen. He got out here. Originally, he, he traveled with a friend of his father's was they had planned for him to be a sheep herder. That didn't work out. He, w- he was gone within a very short period of time. Uh, ran into a, an old mountain man uh, named Jake Hoover. Spent time with him. Eventually became a cowboy. Um, wasn't that good of a cowboy, but he could support himself. But no matter what else he was doing, he always practiced art. He, you know, he painted and sketched and drew and modeled uh, animals and that sort of thing for modeling clay and wax. And it was a, a, a really great storyteller as well. And cowboys always loved him. So in um, about 1894, he decided that he was going to try to be an artist, uh, give up cowboying, but he devoted the rest of his life to depicting, and in his opinion, the Montana, real Montanans were Indians, cowboys and wildlife that was here before what you know settlers arrived um and those were were who he considered the legitimate montanans in the story he wanted to tell so he spent the rest of his life painting stories telling stories of painting pictures and telling stories about cowboys uh native peoples whom he called the only real americans and the wildlife that was here and when the land belonged to god is a depiction, probably his, his best depiction of wildlife. And it shows a herd of buffalo uh, crossing the Missouri River at daybreak. And the lead bull is coming up out, um, out of the river and is on the top of the bank. And it's just, you know, it's both a um, magnificent painting, wildlife painting in its own right. But when, he, when you know how Charlie felt about things and when you look at the title, When the Lamb Belonged to God, uh, you know, that just tells you a lot about how he felt about this place and what was important to him. You know, it's interesting, both looking at this specific painting, but then for any of our listeners who have been or will go to the C.M. Russell Museum here in Great Falls, you know, one, one thing that all, that has stood out to me, and it took me a while to put it into words, right, was that his artwork, there always seemed to be this interesting mix of, romant, you know, romanticizing whatever the subject matter was that he was painting. It was usually the paintings less so than his sketches and his his, uh, sculptures and stuff, but also like an acknowledgement that 
whoever or whatever his painting belonged to the subject of that painting, right? So, so it was just this for me. It was always really interesting, you know, kind of you know the rose-colored glasses, or if you're in, you know, the Wizard of Oz, you know, the the emerald emerald color glasses type thing. But just through the subject matter alone, you can tell he definitely held Native Americans, cowboys, and then of course the wildlife in very high esteem, um, and, and kind of. I, you put it into words in a way that I'd never been able to process it, but 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 now once you said it, I was like, like you know, light bulb went off. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. And I think my, some of my favorite ones are, again, not knowing anything about art, not being an art historian and stuff like that. But the thing I've always appreciated with his artwork is a lot of the colors that he uses, especially when he's talking about daybreak and dusk when he paints paintings around that, and how he's able to do with a paintbrush and, and paint that, you know, I can do with my iPhone <laughs> now is quite impressive. And it, it's something I've definitely always loved going to that museum and just wandering around. It, it, it's a, it's a really fascinating place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think that's something we hear a lot that people say, you know, I, I saw Russell paintings, you know, either sunset or, or sunrise and the colors look so fake. And then I came to Montana and, that's really what it looks like. You know, we, we call them Charlie Russell sunsets because the color is just so vibrant. Um, but he also, like with the buffalo, I mean, that was having a herd of buffalo that size across the river, the Missouri River, was actually, you know, at one point that was a common sight. It was, that was a common sight before Charlie got here. He, he himself never saw that because the buffalo were pretty much gone by the time he got here. But, you know, their early uh, accounts from people coming up on steamboats or, or, you know, early trappers and stuff where, you know, literally you might have to wait a day for the buffalo to finish crossing the river. Um, so, you know, being able to capture something he never saw and portray it so convincingly, I think, you know, says a lot about both his his talent and, you know, his spirit, where, where his mind was when he did that. Now, that's a great point. Is And I think that kind of gets into the, again, I don't know if it's romanticizing, but I feel like it kind of hints of that, right? Is that he's painting a picture of something he never laid eyes on, right? And just, just whether it's through stories or reading books or or whatever it might have been, you know, I always, forget, I always had the sense that he was painting, he was painting a West, and this is probably true of a lot of Western artists, uh, they were painting a West that they were sad wasn't there anymore, you know, but it was only possible to paint it either. But all that had to happen for Charlie Russell to be at the Missouri River to paint that picture. You know what I mean? So, so it's a very, well, let's call it interesting because I don't have a better word for it right now, but a very interesting, you know, all these Western artists are very interesting in how they yearned for something that wasn't there, but were able to represent it in such a way that was just absolutely gorgeous. Right. The other, the other thing that I think is interesting about Russell is that, um, you know, people that, especially his friends and people that know him and admired him, you know, they're, they, one of the things you hear the most common is that he painted it like he, it was, he knew exactly what he was painting. And it's so super realistic. And to some, I mean, on one hand, that's true. Um, but on the other hand, using when the land belonged to God as an example, that, I mean, he, he primarily was, I mean, he was an exceptional artist and he wanted to, to you know, paint a beautiful picture and he wanted to tell us good story. And, you know, Jack Lepley, uh, who, you know, knew more about Fort Benton history than anyone, said that, you know, that there isn't a spot where you can see what the, it's Frenchman's Ridge and Brown Butte, I think, in the background that, you know, that's not actually a specific spot in nature. It's Russell combined these different elements 
to tell the story he wanted to tell and make the painting look like he wanted it to. So he, he actually, you know, like I think most artists do, um, you know, they don't replicate exactly what they see. He never saw that, but he created, you know, used all these different realistic elements to create a scene that is totally believable, even though it never, that particular scene never actually existed. But it's no, believable that, and people think it did. Yeah, no, no, and I, you know, that, that's a great point. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I also use, love his use of titles because, you know, when the land belonged to God, that tells you something. I mean, he could have called it Buffalo Crossing a River, which the painting would have still been just as nice, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't evoke that same sense of nostalgia. And, you know, it, it's not making a statement the way, you know, when the land belonged to God or other titles like when, when horses talk war, there's slim chance for truce. Um, he, or, Brock, or Laugh Kills Lonesome is another one of my favorites. So I, I just I think you know when you when you see the title that just kind of helps set your your mind where he where he wanted you to take it. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, that's a good point too. Is that just how he titles all of his, especially his paintings? Um, you're right. It could have been Buffalo Crossing or River, and the painting would just be as beautiful. But it wouldn't have kind of the like some sort of like gravitas. It's because he painted he he titled it what he did. You know, and I'm I'm fairly confident this is C.M. Russell painting, but at the museum here in Great Falls, there's one where it's you got a bunch of cowboys around a fire and one guy just drew down and shot the other guy, you know, and so you get, you know, so another guy's dead on the ground. Another guy, you still see the smoke coming out of the end of his gun and it's titled something like he got caught. Right. So he's cheating at cards around the fire. Right. It could have been, you know, man shot other man while cheating, you know, but like he got caught, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic just how he's able to title these things. And, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of heavy titles, but they can also be whimsical sometimes. Like, he got caught to me. It's just, it, it, it makes me chuckle. I was like, oh, he got caught, and so now he shot him. Yeah, yeah he definitely had a sense of humor, for mm -hmm. sure. And I know, and I'll, last statement of mine here, then we move on the last couple of questions. But, like, I think some of my actual favorite pieces of C.M. Russell art um, are the doodles he would do on envelopes that he mailed to friends. You know, it's it's a, like, like there's a handful of them I've seen and they're just they're they're cartoonish little sketches. And it's like it's like I wish you were here, you know, type stuff. And they're usually pretty um, well cartoonish. Right. And so they all that to me, they're always kind of uplifting a little bit. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, there's a chance that whoever it could have been a close friend of his, whoever got that letter in 1901, you know, but he had doodled. You know, he, he was doing a residency and sculpting up in New York, I forget, at some point in time and might have been writing back home to Montana and that friend may have just opened the letter, chuckled and threw, you know, tossed it out, not really knowing what it, I mean, why would they think about what it would mean, you know, a hundred years down the road. But I mean, like you, you got a doodle from C.M. Russell, you know, hold on to that. <laughs> exactly. Although I think a lot of people, you know, because Charlie himself was so well liked, I think people really, when they did get a letter from him, you know, they treasured it um, and, and held on to it. Maybe not the envelope always, but the letters, I think, you know, Hopefully most of them were saved. So, yeah, the, the, his letters are great. They're uh, amazingly bad handwriting. They're really hard to read. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, it's always worth reading um, just because he's, he's so funny and self-deprecating and, you know, with the, these little insights into, into the way he looked at life. Okay, well, cool. All right, so, um, and you've already kind of um, answered this question in a roundabout way, but, you know, as, as we kind of conclude the, the interview here, um, how can these objects kind of help us better, better understand Montana's past? 
Might be a little bit well, big question, but I figure one worth asking. Yeah, you know, and I, I think we've talked hopefully some specific ways different artifacts do that. But in general, I think, um, you know, maybe pointing out, well, I think I think it's a fun publication. It's not, you know, a, a serious, I mean, there's serious information in here, but it's not like you look at a 500-page textbook and think, oh, my God, I, you know, wade through all that. It's, it's meant to be easily digestible. Uh, it focuses on, um, you know, material culture and maybe, you know, helps people think about some of the, the own items they have in their own lives or their own family heirlooms. I mean, that's kind of what this is, is a collection of, you know, the state's family heirlooms, if you will, uh, just some of the treasures that we've saved. And, you know, so I think, I think it helps people think in little ways about why the past is important and how it, it still reaches us and, and, you know, and what we have in common with the past or maybe what's changed. But also when you, when you take all these things together, you can start to look at them and, and see that bigger picture. And obviously, you know, there's 101 objects. There's parts of the Montana history we had to leave out uh, just because there wasn't room or we didn't have those items in our collection. But I, I think something like this is kind of meant to just get people thinking more in depth about you know, why the past is important, how the physical remainders of the past uh, can still teach us and, and still have meaning for today. No, no, that, that's, that's great. And uh, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, that's the thing I've always found, despite being a historian myself, I, you know, I research archives and I write, right? I, I don't do it in a, well, like a museum does. And even when I go to, you know, I'll go to, you know, anytime I go anywhere, I'll go to whatever the museum is to check it out, whether or not I really quote unquote care about the, the contest. I'm just kind of curious what's there. And, and in, in a, a good museum or actually even not, maybe not even necessarily the best museum, but like having a, a particular artifact out there that I can see and kind of see myself in or doing or using, right? I mean, for me personally, uh, helps me relate to the past oftentimes better than the stuff I end up researching and writing about. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I think it's just that connection. You know, it's you know the movie Six Degrees of Separation. Well, there's there's now only when you can look at an artifact, there's only one degree of separation between you and the past. So. Okay. All right. So, so last question. Um, so, what is next for you, or even maybe the historical society? And I already got a sense what's next for you, but <laughs> I'll let you say. Well, um, yeah, a couple of things. One is we're after many years of trying, we're now. Uh, undergoing a major building uh, expansion and renovation, and that is super exciting. I think we're talking, you know, end of 2024 or beginning of 2025 when everything is is back up and running. Part of our exhibits are closed right now, but um, we still have our Russell Gallery open, and people should come in and see that. And our neither empty nor unknown exhibit, which is uh, Montana at the time of Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. they're again focused on the Indian peoples who who lived here that for the most part Russell, I mean that most part Lewis and Clark didn't actually see, but they saw Lewis and Clark. Um, so telling that story. But um, anyway, it's going to be super exciting. It's going to be a fantastic facility when it opens in a couple of years here. And so everybody should put that on their or calendars or trips to take in 2025. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is we have um, what's the National Register um uh, which of course is national in origin, but we uh, manage the National Register for Montana. And there are, um, I can't remember how many properties, but anyway, a large number of properties on the National Register. And um, so we're doing a kind of a sequel to this book, which is a history of Montana in 101 places. 
uh, featuring the, some of the places that are on the register. Uh, Charlie Russell's Home and Studio, of course, is on there. Uh, Fort Benton, St. Mary's Mission, um, some lesser known places as well. Uh, but just there again, kind of a similar um, approach to this book and just picking 101 of those places that tell us more about our past. I, for one, am very excited about that, you know, especially being a uh, an urban historian by training, you know, places and, and buildings and structures and all that kind of stuff. I'm very I'm excited about that one. I was actually happy to, happy to hear that. So I can't wait till that actually uh, ends up coming out. Yeah, we're pretty excited. And we hope, you know, so far the, the reception of this book has been great. And I think people will continue, you know, find that as a, a nice compliment to it. Okay. Well, cool. Well, um, so just as, as, a, as a parting um, kind of note to, well, to anybody who may be listening, um, I, don't, I recommend that if, if, if and when you get a chance, you find yourself in Helena, Montana, definitely go down by the Capitol building and check out um, the museum um, either now um, or definitely after the, the new building is, is up and running. I, for one, should be here when that happens, so I'm very anxious to see that. Um, I'll also say I'm always going to pitch uh, different archives, and so I've used the state archives there on several occasions. And so anything West, any, actually anything you're researching ever, they have a really good collection there um, that can help people's research and stuff like that. And they have a really helpful staff as well. Um, I think it's, uh, Zoe Ann, she's the one that always ends up helping me uh, there. So she's always been really, really good uh, for all that kind of stuff. But but yeah, so no, yeah, so this was a, a history of Montana and 101 objects. Uh, so if, if you're listening and, and you think it might be up your alley, um, reach out. I know it's on the the the, web, the historical society's website, but I think you can get it on Amazon as well. I think I saw it there too. Um, so so definitely hop on and um, pick you up a copy. And Kirby, this was fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. Well, Troy, thank you. It's my pleasure. I appreciate you uh, talking to me. This has been great. Awesome. All right. Take care, y'all. All right. Thanks.